The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Avery Schmitz with an episode of Chatter for March 19th, 2023. For today's episode, the Lawfare team decided to cross-post this week's episode of Chatter, a podcast from David Priest and Shane Harris, featuring in-depth discussions with fascinating people at the creative edges of national security. Today's Chatter episode is entitled Spy Movies and the Oscars with Alyssa Rosenberg. In it, Harris sat down with Rosenberg to discuss the role of iconic spy movies in American cinema and popular culture. This is Chatter. This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, journalist Alyssa Rosenberg on spy movies and the Oscars. I think the best spy stories get at the fact that there is something sort of fundamentally immoral about the work. You know, it is stealing. It's cheating. It's lying. It's deception. The assassination of Bin Laden. It was a story that was sort of entwined with Hollywood from the beginning, right? Like... Dwayne The Rock Johnson breaks the story nationally. He knew a bunch of Marines and he tweeted it. God, I forgot that. That's wild. I would love to see someone make a geopolitical horror movie about a foreign power that creates an app that it uses to poison an entire country's brains, right? Like, TikTok is horror movie. is like an obvious (laughs) techno thriller, right? Alyssa Rosenberg, welcome to Chatter. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy you're here. I know. This is like, I mean, it's both a throwback and a look forward. I know. It's very I like exciting. it. This is very good. This is very good. We both like to pod, but we've never potted together. I know. And it's like, we, we work together. We yeah. had drinks together. Yeah. But it's like, I feel like this is the 2023 sign of intimacy, right? It's like, have you potted together? <laughs> I like that. I'm going to go with that theme for the year. That's very good. Um, so for those of you who don't know Alyssa, she is a writer at the opinion section at the Washington Post where she writes about culture. She writes about pop culture, mass culture. She writes about parenting. She writes about gender. You have a very nice wide portfolio. It's super fun. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk today about the Oscars. We're going to talk about spy movies and the Oscars. Before we get to the Oscars, though, um, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. We go way back, but tell us, go back before, before, go back to the Alyssa origin story, before we get to the Shane Alyssa origin story. So, Where'd you grow up? Um, I grew up all over New England. I was born in Connecticut. My family moved to Vermont when I was seven and Massachusetts when I was 11. And 
I actually had my first job, the one that you know made me the woman I am today, starting when I was eight years old okay. in Vermont, um, where my mother uh, signed me up to write book reviews for the children's page of the local paper. They paid me in gift certificates <laughs> to the local bookstore, which was just an incredible boondoggle for everyone involved. Nice. The Cokes would have loved it, right? right. It's like the, their perfect vision of child labor. Um, it's a really good thing the internet didn't exist because my author photo featured me in like tiny pink glasses and oh, a little no. lace ruff. Like, you, you still know, have it? Of course yeah. I still have it. You should um, use it. Uh, no, some things <laughs> will never see the light of day. Um, but it's really, it's funny because, you know, I... I think I was always sort of interested in journalism, and I had had this job. Um, But it took me a while to figure out that I wanted to be in journalism. Mm -hmm. I would say well into my college career Mm. when I was doing a lot of activist work, but I was also writing a column about city politics for the student newspaper. Um, And I I took a writing class um, taught by Linda Peterson. Um, and it's one of the sort of classic classes at Yale where I went to school. Um, and it's called Daily Themes. Mm. And she said at the beginning of the class that this is the perfect test of whether or not you want to be a writer because the course is exactly as the title suggests. You have to sit down and turn in an assignment every weekday of the entire semester. Wow. And it's competitive. There are uh, you know 120 people in the class all submitting five essays a week. And then the section leaders would get together with the professor and pick a couple essays to be read every week. Oh, my week. God. So it's brutal, right? I mean, it's exactly it's, what a bunch of type A overachieving Ivy League undergrads need 100%, to develop. A hundred percent. But it's also it's like if you're a competitive reporter yeah. at a major paper, mm-hmm. it's the competition for A1, right? Precisely. And yes. so, you know, that was the question. Do you like writing every day when – it's terrible when you're assigned to write on one of the themes where you have no idea, no inspiration. Um, the the section leaders were really, really tough on us, um, mm-hmm. and I loved it. Mm-hmm. it. I just loved it. And I, um, I interned at The Atlantic the summer before my senior year and then came down to D.C. to work as the fact checker at National Journal, which is where I met you when I think I was not even a week out of college. Yeah. I mean, I was I was a baby. <laughs> Was that was you, were you were you excited to be coming to DC and like working in journalism in Washington? I mean, did it feel like this kind of arrival for you, or was it more happenstance? That's interesting. I mean, I think I was glad to have a job in journalism. Right, period. Right. Um, I you know my parents had lived in DC in the seventies, and I actually ended up moving back to their old neighborhood, like literally a block or two from where they lived. Um, and, you know, look, I think D.C. was probably a good match for someone like me who mm-hmm. was, you know, nerdy and earnest and, you know, had never lived in a really big city. Um, and so I was glad to have a job and it turned out to be a really nice fit. And then just as it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do, you know, broadly professionally, it took me a while to sort out what I was going to do in journalism. Um, the fact-checking job was great because I sat down and read the entire magazine right. cover to cover every week. And, and a very nerdy, wonky magazine, too. Yes, yeah. National <clears throat> Journal, for those who are not familiar with it, um, was this incredible sort of policy and politics, really trade magazine, yep. right, in a way that, you know, doesn't really exist anymore. Right. You know, That's not right. – I don't even think something like Politico or Axios comes yeah. close to – the depth or sort of usefulness. It'd be um, like if Politico and Axios had a baby with The Economist. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, you had people who were p- reporting full time on agriculture, yes. on, you know, on subjects that 
you know, we're always going to be sort of marginal in the public attention, mm-hmm. but that we're vital for people who were making policy, who were, you know, sitting on the Ag Committee in Congress, uh, who were doing the work of keeping the country running. Mm-hmm. Um, was that intimidating as the fact checker? Because, like, you was, know if you miss a fact, someone's going to see it. It was terrifying. <laughs> um, in my first week at the magazine, there was a columnist who shall remain nameless who had a bunch of errors in a piece. Oh, and, I know who this is. <laughs> and I, I had to go to Charlie Green, you yeah, know, the editor, yeah. and be like, this is, this is wrong, sir. And the columnist got really mad. And Charlie sided with me, and that was an incredible—I mean, I really was nervous about being wrong. But to be in a place that had that emphasis for, you know, (laughs) nobody is above the facts. Right, totally. My understanding was that I was the first checker who got through the whole magazine on a regular basis. Oh, wow, Um, I didn't know that. Because there was only one of us. It was really, you know, it was an excellent copy desk. Um, You know, I learned a ton from people like Scott Rohr, who Mm -hmm. I worked with— uh, but it was, you know, it was a big, meaty publication. It was coming out weekly. Dense. It was a lot of very arcane yeah. stuff. Um, and so it was a great opportunity to just dive into this sort of arcana. And from there, actually with your help, I moved over to Government Executive, yeah. another trade publication, uh, which still exists and is vital for people who work in the federal government. Right. And I spent three years covering um, federal personnel policy. Um which, you know, in some cases meant just racing the Washington Post to get, you know, the scoop of what the federal pay raise was going to be right. in, you know, 2007. This was all a while ago. But it also meant, you know, the National Air Traffic Controllers Association leaked me a bunch of data on staffing mm-hmm. at, you know, the towers and trade cons around the country. And we were able to demonstrate that those facilities were really understaffed in ways that were dangerous. And so, you know, it was... I think one, the minute I got there, I knew that was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. But, you know, s- developing those skills of, okay, you're going to sit in a House Government Affairs and Oversight Committee and listen to, you know, Jerry Connolly get something done in between Daryl Issa pontificating about things. It was really <laughs> valuable, right? Yeah. I mean, it. You see how the sausage gets made. Well, but it also teaches you sort of patience mm. and details and the virtue of, you know, developing relationships. And, you know, I, I would not be, you know, where I am today without Anne Loren and Tom Shoup and that job. Yeah. Um, and so I'm incredibly grateful for it. But while I was there, I was thinking, okay, you know, what do I want to do next? And this was the days when you could start a blog for free on the internet (laughs) and, (laughs) um, you know, figure out something that you wanted to do. So I started a blog about pop culture, a subject about which I knew very little. Mm. I actually grown up much more immersed in books than Mm -hmm. in pop culture. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I put myself on this sort of daily theme style writing schedules. Like I had to put up three posts a day. Um, and, you know, often it would be like a music video with a couple lines of commentary or I watched this and it was weird. Um, but it found a following. I actually met my best friend through um, through the blog. She wrote something really mean about something I had written and I got in touch with her. And, I, you know, I have a phone date with her today as we record this podcast. <laughs> so, um, you know, I – I got to – I found this rhythm and this voice and ended up taking that over to Think Progress when that site was still running. Um, you know, there was this ecosystem. I, you know, <laughs> I launched the blog while guest blogging for Matt Iglesias with Ta-Nehisi Coates. Again, like this tells you <laughs> early days, an, early yeah. er, an earlier era of the internet. Yeah. But there was this really nice sort of, you know, 
almost calling it like a, I think the best way to describe it is sort of a link economy, right? Uh-huh. I mean, people were sort of helping each other out, helping yeah. each other's things grow. Right. And so Matt helped bring me over to Think Progress, where I started a culture and then a uh, spinoff sports section. And um, Fred Hyatt brought me over to the Washington Post opinion section in 2012. Mm-hmm. No, 2014. It might have been like 14, right? Yeah, it has yeah, to yeah. be. It has to be 2014. That's right. <clears throat> but you're coming up on 10 years there, yeah. Yeah, coming up on 10 years. And so it was a really interesting experience where you know I was the only critic in the country working in an opinion section. And is that right? Yeah. Um, oh. I mean, I think there are people who wrote about culture periodically, like Maureen Dowd has always sure. sort of dabbled in that beat. But I was the first person who's coming into it as you know I'm a I'm a close reader of a text, and that's right. sort of what I do, and right. I do reporting on that ecosystem. Um, and, you know, it's been just an incredible home for me ever yeah. since. And, you know, I've been writing more about parenting lately because I, I am a parent now. Yeah. I have two kids under five. Um, they keep me very busy. One of them turned to me the other day and said, Mommy, why can't we do crimes? Uh, <laughs> um, so they keep you on your toes. But it's also, I think, a really sort of interesting emergent policy area. There's a very rich culture of parenting. And yeah. so... It's been sort of a natural but very yeah. interesting evolution. So we'll be today diving in with your pop culture <laughs> forte, which you have developed over the years. And um, and one of the reasons I really like was excited to talk to you about the Oscars and spy movies is, like you said, you are a very close reader of texts. And there's just not that many critics who are also sort of performing that kind of function when they're watching a film in addition to like when they're reading a book and you kind of sort of bring a level of seriousness and interest to it and you can watch how your mind is working on well, something. Well, and I'm also a policy dork, right? Yes, that too. You know, exactly. and so it's, I mean, I have always been very interested in, you know, not sort of these sort of crude questions like, is this accurate, right? Yeah. Because there's a whole genre of policy coverage of culture that's like, well, they didn't get the color of the elevator buttons on the fourth floor of Langley Wright, and yeah. that just proves they don't know what they're talking right. about. Yeah, right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. That's never been that interesting to me, but um, over the years, I've come to really appreciate culture as creating a space where it's possible to say things that are impermissible hmm. elsewhere in our political cultures. And mm-hmm. so, you know, something like Zero Dark Thirty is a movie that, you know, is about the moral degradations of the war on terror mm-hmm. and the sort of, you know, an individual who embodies those degradations, mm-hmm. right? And it's mm-hmm. like in, you know, in contemporary po- political discourse, there isn't a lot of room, for example, to like talk about Lindy England and like who she is as a person mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, who is the person who oversaw <laughs> Lindy England? Right. Um, you know, you actually get that, expo- that you know, what torture did to the people who committed it explored really well in Paul Schrader's The Card Counter, um, mm. which I thought was one of the best movies yeah. I've seen in the last couple of years. Uh, just unbelievable Oscar Isaac performance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so culture, you know, it's it's become a cliche to talk about people sort of holding space, but that's what culture does for us politically and intellectually. It creates space for us to feel things that we're not supposed to feel and say things that we're not supposed to say. Right, right. So let's talk about the uh, this recent Oscars show, because there are two films that kind of hit on the, the broad themes of spying and security and some really interesting political dynamics, both from a film about a previous war and then some kind of imaginary war that we're in right now. I'm speaking of All Quiet on the Western Front and Top Gun Maverick, best movie of the year. Uh, so first Lydia Tar was wrong. <laughs> okay, also a great movie. So what do you think of the show, first of all? I just want to know what you 
you thought of the show? Um, I thought it was totally pleasant, yeah. right? Which yeah. is, you know, sort of damning with faint praise, but considering that the Oscars have developed this reputation as, you know, an entertaining train wreck yeah, actually yeah. counts as an improvement. Like when the closest you get to stepping over the line is like Cocaine Bear giving Malala a hard time. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little cringy, but yeah, that was about it. Yeah, but like, you know, that woman handled herself beautifully. Yeah. She's as she does everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I thought Jimmy Kimmel was fine. He, I mean, even more so than sort of Billy Crystal. He, I mean, he understands that his role is of a facilitator, yeah. right? He sets the scene. He sets the tone. But especially in a year like this where there was a really lovely narrative, you know, coming into it of people, you know, being recognized who had not previously gotten their due in the entertainment industry of people coming back after mm-hmm. having gotten sort of lost in the wilderness. You know, he did a really nice job of making sure that that tone could persist, right? Yeah. And I hope that there were no colossal logistical snafus. Um, right. But, you know, it, it was like a perfectly nice ceremony. Yeah. And in a weird way, that's like, I think that requires mental recalibration. I think so, too. And it felt to me, like, I love that. I thought it was the best show in years. It felt, frankly, the way, and this makes me sound like I'm just going to date myself, the way the Oscars used to be. Yeah. When it was, you know, it was charming. It was good-natured. Um, you know, the jokes were, some of them were kind of pointed, but they weren't meant to wound. Yeah. You know, which was such a departure, obviously, from from last year, where the whole slap thing just became, you know, both a kind of tasteless joke that then just escalated so wildly into violence. Um, which, by the way, it was interesting to me that he leaned into that moment so many times. I thought he would just leave it to the Chris Rock special to have the last word on that. And he just kept returning to it as a motif, which I loved. Yeah. Were you surprised um, by that? Yeah, I mean, and I wasn't sure. I'm not sure it was like the strongest bit of the. Yeah. I mean, they were no, okay. Right? I they mean, were like, fine. I think the Elron Hubba Hubba joke. <laughs> oh, that, is, okay, that was tense. Yeah. About Tom Cruise. Well, and the fact, I mean, I have to say, I think it is a shame that Cruise didn't show up um, to the ceremony. I, yes. In, you know, and maybe he is in the process of jumping motorcycles off cliffs or something for right. um, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. But on a movie like that, you know, where even where you're not nominated, even where the movie's not going to win Best Picture, you show up for your technical people who are nominated, I right? I was surprised he didn't show up especially, because it did win an Oscar. And especially given the attention, you know, that he likes to draw to the below-the-line process, right? Yes. So I thought that was less, less tasteful than um, I find him to be solely in matters of sort of promoting the below-the-line craftsmen who make his work right. possible. Well, particularly when Top Gun Maverick kind of is being embraced as the movie that saved the cinema post-COVID. Yeah. Show up and get your dues, man. Exactly. Right? I, I was really stunned that he didn't sort of like take the victory lap. Well, that's actually, that's a great, that movie is a great jumping off point to talk about some themes that I want to explore with you. And, you know, Two kind of big ideas for me emerged thinking about Top Gun Maverick, which I just loved, and I think everybody had a great time watching it in the theater. And like Top Gun was a very formative movie for me as a kid, both because I wanted to be a fighter pilot and when I saw the men playing volleyball with their shirts off, and it was like, <laughs> both these things are interesting. Um, so it just, it just looms huge in the public consciousness. And to your point about culture being this like space that right. we create, it's got a mythology around it. But one, it had a lot of controversy going in because the movie was edited to be more uh, amenable to basically Chinese censorship so that it could show in Chinese movie theaters, which are a huge part of the market. Um, and the other is that the villain is never really specified, right? It's just sort of like North Chiranistan. Yes, right? the, like the, the fill-in-the-blank is Stan, yeah. as, which 
honestly is a convention in more, you know, in more action movies mm-hmm. than you would think. Is right? that because of the Chinese sensitivities? Well, I think it's not the just... The sensitivities about China. I think it's not just the Chinese sensitivities. I think it's the internationalization of the movie market, right? Mm. I mean, it's not only do you not want to get yourself kicked out of any given potential market um, by saying, like, you're the bad guys, it leaves everyone free to project their sort of nationalist prejudices into the bad guy is, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you never see the faces of any of the fighter pilots either. You right. don't have a sense of who the leadership is. Like, yeah. They're just bad. Mm-hmm. They're just the bad guys. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think that is both very convenient for the entertainment industry's increasingly global bottom line. Yeah. Um but it, you know, to a certain extent, it also speaks to contemporary American security culture where, you know, in the wake of 9-11, you know, all of a sudden it's like, well, this area is really strategically important. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's, you know, people from this acronym group, you know, popping up in this part of the Horn of Africa. And now we're really concerned about that. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I think it's I think it's driven much more by Hollywood's economics. But it's don't you think it's sort of accidentally a real reflection of the sort of confusingness of you know US foreign policy in a non-great power era. I think so because if you look at I mean Top Gun was such a binary. I mean we were we were fighting the Soviets, yep. right? And you know they had it was the MiGs and it was all clear from the beginning and it was this complete construct that everybody who saw that movie understood. And while nuclear weapons never come into play, which was sort of an interesting facet because that movie comes out at a very fevered point in the Cold War, um, it was us fighting the Russians. And we understood that. Whereas you're right, this movie, it's, I mean, you could make the creative argument for making it a vague enemy, even if there weren't all of the international market sensitivities, precisely for that reason, because it kind of captures the threat of uh, rogue states the threat of rogue nuclear weapons, things we can't see, things that are really hard to detect, places that are really hard to go, all of the contours about the war on terror and the sort of post 9-11 kind of asymmetric environment where cyberspace gets into this too, where it's not just we can fight the Russians, we can dogfight them and no. win. It's all of these variables are in play, no. which I kind of loved how, you know, in the movie, they set it up, right, as this crazy obstacle course he right. has to go through where well, it could fail at every point. Well, and that's also very video game inspired, very right? Video game I mean, inspired, right. You know, um, but it's it's also interesting that it's a movie that attempts to, you know, argue both for American technical superiority and for the superiority of American human capital, right? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it's it's ultimately the human skill and a training program that brings in an idiosyncratic group of people and makes sure that they have the same sort of knowledge base and instinct base but can just deploy it in their own ways. Um, That's more, that, you know, is the decisive factor. Because they have to bring in Tom Cruise to as sort of this kind of this, he is now the veteran and he is going to, you know, show the young whippersnappers. But he also has to confront, you know, his own, like guilt over Goose's death, his right. penchant for, mm. you know, secrecy and sort of dishonesty in dealing with Goose's son. Mm-hmm. You know, he he has to improve as part of the process as well. Yeah, I was actually very pleased to see it nominated for a screenplay award, yeah. adapted because I thought, you know, even though it's a little weird to say it's like adapted from the previous movie, it's like we call that a sequel. But I thought the story was great. I yeah. thought it was beautifully constructed for all the many of the reasons that you just pointed out, um, which is not something. 
I think that we're used to seeing from action movies. Many of them are great. Like I think The Hunt for Red October is a near perfect screenplay. Love that movie, as listeners know. But like it was, it was nice to see a movie like this where there was real creative effort put into making it something more than just a movie with very cool planes flying yes. around. Yeah, and it's you know it's not a complicated story, no. right? It's very simple, but you know it's it's artful. It's you know it's a classy picture. Yeah, it right? is. It is. Is it? Do you, I mean, do you think that the argument that Top Gun Maverick saved the box office is overblown, or is that is that a real thing? Um, I mean, I think that look, movie going is a habit, right? And mm-hmm. um, for most Americans, it's not a habit they indulge in very often. And what was really dangerous about the pandemic, you know, from a cinematic perspective, is that it breaks that habit. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm someone who you know, I go to the movies generally at least once a week, like in a theater. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of what was so bizarre about that first year of the pandemic for me, you know, um, some friends and my husband and I, like, rented out a theater for the four of us to see Tenet. And, like, we wore masks in the parking lot. Because that was one of the first ones back. 20 rows away from each other. Um, But it was, you know, having that, that sort of loneliness of the movies. And so... You know, I don't think like obviously the habit wasn't entirely broken for people who go to Marvel movies or DC movies or whatever. But um, I think Top Gun played a valuable role in sort of dusting off, you know, that dusting off that habit mm-hmm. for people who were not necessarily inclined to go to one of the you know really 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 pre-established ongoing franchises. Right. Um, so I think that was really valuable. Um, Speaking of Tom Cruise, what do you think of, like, when you think of the Mission Impossible franchise and, like, situating it in the genre, which it clearly is in the genre of, the genre of spy movies, but right. it, it, I think those movies kind of perfectly balance between spy and action film yeah. because so many times action films are just, or action movies that want to say they're a spy movie are just actually action movies, yeah. right? And this balances it. So how do you think of that franchise kind of in the... I mean, it's a big question, but like the pantheon of espionage films. I mean, look, I love it, but it's also very much part of a modern trend of espionage movies that are about the sort of survival or integrity of the institution itself, untethered Mm -hmm. from any larger national interest, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, like the Mission Impossible movies are not really about America anymore, right? Like they're about the Impossible Missions division. Um, The James Bond movies are, you know, I mean, I love the Daniel Craig Bond yeah, era. I think in, I mean, I think that Casino Royale and Skyfall are both like pretty perfect movies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but those movies are about James Bond's psyche and sort of MI6 and its position in a waning British empire. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the Avengers movies and, you know, are about S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Avengers as an institution. There's like, there's no sense of national identity in those movies right. really at all, right. you know. Um, And to a certain extent, you know, I think that's always been true in spy fiction, right? I mean, we, you know, we love John le Carre because the world of the circus um, is sort of self-contained in and of itself. But it is still, you know, anchored in an idea of Britishness, right? Mm -hmm. And like the Impossible Mission Force has nothing in particular to do with Americanness at this point. You know, James Bond has... You know, very little to do with a larger sense of Britishness, um, in especially in sort of the post-imperial era. Um, and so I love it. I mean, look, I love those movies. Yeah. Like, 
I, you know, I will watch Tom Cruise do any truly insane thing. Yes. Um, it's like, and I'm sure this is all in service of like, you know, Dianetics and like persuading us. It's like, <laughs> if only we two could go clear, like we could hang off the side of an airplane, right? So <laughs> he's going to win his first Oscar for stunts. They're going to create that category. category. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Like Elron Hubble will like be, be beamed back down from the spaceship yeah. onto the Oscar stage, right, et cetera. Right. Um, and so. Yeah, I mean they're they're just tremendously enjoyable. But yeah. if you think about modern action movies, you know the John Wick franchise mm. is in some ways so much more kind of like rounded in a fleshed out you know cultural milieu and ideology than any of our modern spy franchise spy franchises. Interesting. I love this idea too that it, it's. You know, in the Bond movies, especially, well, really all the Bond movies, you're right, but I mean, they're, they're disconnected from an idea necessarily of national interest. It's more sort of, it's it's good and evil. And I suppose yeah. they get, that's, that's a, that makes them more broadly appealing to an audience. But that does seem to fit better with kind of, I think, I guess, like, you know, how Americans think about the world these days. Like, I think a, 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 a I, 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 for instance, I don't watch the, um, Oh, well, well, what am I thinking of? The Jack Ryan franchise yeah. on Amazon. So I don't know if that's like deeply rooted like in an America fuck yeah kind of context. Yeah. But like I just don't feel like those – that idea would come over maybe as well. There may be other shows I'm misoverlooking that do have more of a patriotic streak to them. But it just feels like just this very cool entity that plays by its own rules. Like not that it's anti-patriotic but that it's, you know – it's self-contained, right? Yeah, and look, I think that is, you know, we were talking about um, how Hollywood is determined not to anger overseas censors, overseas yeah. audiences. I think that's very much a domestic play, right? right. I mean, if you right. have a, you know, a spy who is too rooted in a particular idea of what patriotism means or what the American ideal is at a time when there is very little consensus about that and when, you know, America as a whole has not really sort of honed its self-image in a great power conflict that is sort of intellectual and ideological as well as military. Um, I mean, I think that's a political risk domestically if you want, you know, if you're making something that's primarily for American audiences, you want to get as much of that audience as possible. And, you know, I think the very, very sort of fractured, anxious American self-image doesn't, you know... If if Tom Cruise wants to like personally pull us all together and figure that out, you know, good on him. But <laughs> I think even that is a harder stunt than, you know, jumping your motorcycle right. off a cliff. For sure. Um, obviously, the Oscars can do a lot for films that maybe people hadn't seen yes. very much, and they can boost it into national and international attention. All Quiet on the Western Front, already a pretty heralded movie. I don't know how many people actually saw it, but probably now that it's won so many Oscars, we ha- we'll want we to ha- see We it. have no idea because it's on Netflix and they just make up their numbers. Well, see, that's, that's, so, not, yeah. that's not fair of me. Well, they reflect released, on that a little bit. They, yeah. yeah, so um, Netflix and a lot of the other streaming services, you know, for those of us who grew up with like some access to traditional sets, top television, um, you know, you got a pretty good estimate of how many people were watching something on any given night, um, thanks to what was known as the Nielsen ratings. Like, right. I can't believe I'm explaining this is a historical artifact. We but old. we have to now. We old. Um, <laughs> they would pay you money to watch TV. Yes, they would pay you money to watch TV, and you know that Nielsen Corporation had this sort of representative sample of American households, and you know there were like. 
actual physical devices in your house that measured like what you were watching and when and how much of it. Now, the streaming companies technically have access to much more granular data than that, right? If you were not a Nielsen family, you know, you were represented by someone else in the Nielsen sample, and so Nielsen was extrapolating about what you were probably watching. Netflix knows like every minute of your, you know, your shameful habits, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Netflix and the other streaming companies don't release, you know, X million people watch this show. Instead, they release, you know, X million people watch the first two minutes. Or, mm. you know, this season was watched for, you know, 47 million cumulative minutes over 31 days excluding Wednesdays, right? And so there, you know, our sense of what anyone is watching at a given time is incredibly fragmented. Mm. And I think that, you know, I think the atomization of you know, mass culture, thanks to streaming, is honestly kind of a social problem, which mm-hmm. is a totally different discussion at some point. But, um, you know, so I, I have no idea how many people watched yeah. All Quiet on the Western Front. Like, I have the I, I understand that it was kind of beloved of the craft guilds. You could see that in the precursor awards, sure. running up to the Academy yep. Awards. But um, I have no idea how many people actually watched All Quiet on the Western Front. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 
15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. It's such an interesting reflection, too, on the way people are watching, because so I stumbled on that movie um, <clears throat> through my Netflix queue. I was not aware of it having been released. I did not, when I stumbled over it, I didn't know that it was a current release. I thought, oh, somebody made a movie a couple years ago about this great book. Oh, I'll check it Netflix out. Netflix bought it. Okay. You know. Right. Had no clue where it, where it sat and started watching it and then immediately realizing, oh, no, this is something different. This isn't like a slap together film. But I actually watched it in installments, which is something I rarely ever oh, do with a feature film and still found it really satisfying. I watched it over three different periods, hmm. which, I mean – maybe helped in the sense that like the movie is very intense and you can maybe, you know, not that it's like have a problem sitting through nearly three hours of it, but um, it was such an interesting way to see it. Uh, and I wasn't, uh, I'm just not accustomed to watching features that way. And I wonder if it's, it's, it's like the Netflix influence on my watching habits. It's mm. just like making me maybe more inclined to, to yeah. break up a movie that way. Um, I love that movie. I mean, I thought it was, I have not read the novel, I should say. Oh, really? Okay, that's interesting. Because one of the things that was interesting for me is the movie excises a section of the novel where the main character goes home and finds himself sort of unable to acclimate to domestic society. Mm, um, interesting. 
And trading that for the sort of intercut sequences, which are also not in the novel, of the German negotiators sort of finalizing the ceasefire that ends World War One, um, it, it's geopolitically interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, when you have Daniel Bruhl come in as your lead negotiator and he's all sensitive and handsome and German, right. you know, it it's sort of exculpatory. It's like interesting. Y- yeah. Y'all started this thing. Like right. this is this is y'all's expansionist problem. Right. Right. It's right. Like, right. But Daniel Bruhl's so dreamy and he wants to end the conflict. <laughs> <That's> so nice. <laughs> he just has a way out. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, that um the decision, you know, not that the movie is removed from the question of human suffering. In fact, it arguably sort of revels in it. Yeah. But it it moves you away from the sort of social cost of the war for mm. Germany, right? Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. you know, there are, um, you know, you have a generation of people. I mean, just an ast- it's not just that, you know, you have an astonishing proportion of young German men who die in the First mm-hmm. World War. And the ones who come home are really, really damaged yeah. in a lot of ways, yeah, um, you know, physically, emotionally. Um, I don't know if you've watched Babylon Berlin. On, Love that show. Yeah, yeah. unbelievable. But, but you see, you know, sort of the widespread costs of people who are suffering from shell shock and mental illness and trauma in a society mm-hmm. that's totally unequipped to deal with those maladies. Um, and so I just – I found it finally made – but a little unnerving, hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and it's so interesting to know that the, inter- the the negotiation scenes are not part of the novel. No. Um, to me, that that that's what makes the movie. It gives it a, a different kind of um, another layer, which is these very powerful men, you know, negotiating, and obviously they contrast it with you know this horrible life in the trenches and yeah. these guys who are having lovely pastries and coffee and tea and it's all civilized. And so we're meant to feel like our fates are being decided by these yes. people at Great Remove, which that made it feel very contemporary. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if the novel has that kind of level of awareness about power dynamics or not, but that, to me, that made the movie just hyper-relevant for you know an audience today and might explain why it was so popular. Maybe. And visually as a war movie, it's just it's, it's, incredible. It's the most movie, right? Oh my it's God. I mean there's a there's a joke that my friend Peter Sudeman likes to make that, you know, the award for best sound is traditionally awarded to the movie with the most sound. And <laughs> you know, this is very much a case of like all Quiet on the Western Front is perhaps the most movie. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think it, it, it felt very much in the Saving Private Ryan vein to like pull from another, you know, Oscar-winning war yeah. film where not that – well, I should I should back up on that. When Saving Private Ryan came out, I loved that movie. I do kind of buy the Harvey Weinstein argument that it's two movies. It's like the first movie is 28 minutes of the, the, the first scene and then the rest of the movie. And I like both of them except for the ending is too schmaltzy. But there was something about when that movie came out. Yes, it felt important because it was showing violence in war in a way that hadn't been depicted before and it was honest. There was also something that felt a little gimmicky about it. And, like, that's just, like, a very cynical read maybe on my part because I think, like, even D-Day survivors looked at that and they were like, I can't watch this. This is too too accurate. Um, But that did kind of mark a moment, it felt like, to me in movie making with war movies where if you're going to do a war movie – like, it has to be hyper-realistic. There has to be, like, the guy carrying his arm that just got blown off, right? It can't just be people flying through the air and falling over when they're shot. Yeah. Did you watch 1917? 
I did. Yes. Yeah. 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 Really fine lead performance. Yeah. Too. Yeah. That and m- might actually be superior to the one in All Quiet, but they're both strong. Yeah. And I, but I think that they, is, did we did we cross a threshold? Do you think like with Saving Private Ryan, Probably. where all those movies have to be that one? Yeah. And to a certain extent, it's you know, there's the technical capacity to do it, and to you know, I mean. Filmmaking is a technical business, and we haven't really talked about Avatar at all. Um, you know, it's not quite on theme, but you know, you you start getting these people who take these swings to make things possible, right? I mean, Gone with the Wind, whatever else you feel about that movie, you know, the Battle of Atlanta sequence is, you know, for the time, an incredible technical marvel in showing the you know the horror of the aftermath of a battle. Mm-hmm. Um, Saving Private Ryan is, you know, obviously immersive about combat in a way that something isn't before, and yeah. so. You know, I don't think All Quiet really reinvents anything, but it does it quite well. Yeah. It gets to the question, too, that I want to go back to something you raised earlier, which is this whole notion of accuracy, (laughs) right? It's particularly in the spy genre. And, you know, I think a lot about this because I write about intelligence for a living. I've been doing this for for 20 years. And, you know, I can point out all the things about Homeland that are not how things work, right? Or I can watch a movie and say, like, yeah, it's not that. that." You made, you know, the kind of the joke about whether the elevator button is the correct color. So what do you think? I mean, is it is the when you notice something that is inaccurate, does it disrupt your enjoyment of a film or is that kind of beside the point to you? That's really interesting. I think it often depends on how the inaccuracy is being used, mm. right? I mean, if it's if it's a technical detail, it doesn't, you know, I mean, for example, in The Last of Us saying it's like this mountainous region is like right outside of Boston. It's like, oh, come on, I'm silly. <laughs> like that's that's goofy. Like right. it's like you got to drive further to get to the Berkshires, and they're the, they're the Berkshires, right, right? Right, right, Like, they're not the Alps. Right, uh, right, right. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think I periodically find it distracting. I think it's sort of what is, you know, what is the purpose? There's a difference between an error and a distortion. Right. And what's the purpose of the distortion, right? So, you know, I think a lot of people found um, the uh, – I forget who the director is. It's leaving my brain. Um, you know, there's a recent movie about Stonewall um, mm-hmm. that comes mm-hmm. out, and it's like puts like a cute white cis boy on sort of the front lines, the right. whole thing. Right, right, and right. you know, I think a lot of people found that you know pretty grotesquely offensive. Yeah. Like that swap, you know, both not serving a particular narrative purpose. Why not invest in one of these other protagonists? Yeah. And sort of politically squicky, yeah. right? It's like and also we don't need to do that now. Like we know what the real story of Stonewall well, is. And so this is a recent it. movie, yeah, right? Exactly. Like it's not this is not lengthy. And right. so, you know, it's sort of like what I was saying earlier about art being a place where we kind of say unsayable things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, art can be used to to that end to lie too, mm-hmm. right? To distort. And so I think it's very case by case for me. I'm not you know, I'm not super interested in like technical accuracy for accuracy's sake, um, but I am interested in sort of what purpose dist- distortions serve. This kind of makes me think about when Zero Dark Thirty came out, right? And the whole <laughs> yes. de- the whole debate around it, whether is this movie is this movie saying torture works insofar yeah. as torture led to the discovery yeah. of Osama bin Laden's location? I have to admit, I read, I, sorry, saw that movie. And maybe I'm, I I don't I just don't recall coming away feeling like it was making a clear cut argument, which actually made me think that that was a weakness in the story, that it was somehow not clear about like are you taking a stand on this or not? I mean I think in the narrative it is saying that but for this information that had been extracted, I don't think I think that that if I remember the narrative sequence correctly, 
what they find that leads them to bin Laden is a product of some torture along the way. So I've watched Zero Dark Thirty a lot, in part because I, you know, I was writing about it as a critic yeah. at the time and got embroiled in some of the debates about this. I've probably seen Zero Dark Thirty ten times. Mm. I love that movie. Um, and that opening section of the movie is ambiguous, right? I mean, it opens with the really intense torture of this detainee. But he starts talking not after he's like he does not break in a torture session, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't start like spilling out information. He begins to cooperate after the torture stops. Um, and sp- I mean, there's a scene where I think he's like peeling an orange or mm, something. Yeah, and it, like he's out in the sunshine. It's you know, and I think the movie is ambiguous on that score, right? I mean. Does he respond because the torture made him receptive to, you know, to kindness by the people who had imprisoned him? Um, does torture not in fact work? And in fact, like this other, um, you know, this other approach is what was ultimately successful and important. I don't know that I necessarily see that as a weakness mm. of the movie necessarily because to me Zero Dark Thirty is a larger argument about self-inflicted moral injury, mm. right? And to a certain extent, it doesn't matter whether it worked. What matters is that you know we convinced ourselves that this kind of self-inflicted damage was necessary. We, you know, our leaders asked people to do this mm-hmm. on our collective behalf. Mm-hmm. And those people did it instead of saying no. And, you know, Jessica Chastain's character is destroyed by the experience. Right. Um, and you're left to decide whether that was worth it for her or for anybody else. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know what was September 11th like for you. Where were you? Oh gosh, so I mean, it was it was it was weird because I was actually on vacation. Um, I was working at Government Executive or for our mutual yeah. friend uh, Anne Laurent, um, and it was I remember it was um, uh, the first like proper vacation I had ever taken as a working person as a working professional. And so I went out to LA and was visiting friends, and I was actually out in Palm Springs on 9/11, and it was this completely like out of body feeling because. I it was happening in part where I lived and also all of my colleagues were immediately jumping in and covering it <clears throat> and it's kind of a funny thing to think about now but like we didn't have super easy remote internet access in 2001 yeah. like I had to go to an internet cafe to try to check my email and try to stay back in touch and so it felt like it was happening far away and that I was kind of missing out on the story now that are passed in four or five days, and I got back and was thrown into to writing about it. But, you know, that was the event that put me on track to be a national security journalist because I was writing about the technology industry and technology and government. And almost overnight, that whole space became infused with ideas about surveillance, cybersecurity, information sharing, intelligence mm-hmm. gathering, and that technology was going to provide a solution to this problem of terrorism. Um, which was then very interesting to watch how 
like in those early days, everyone was very high on the ideas that like computers were going to fix the problem because we're just going to put together all the information that we have about the terrorists, then we'll see where they're coming from. Um, which is why when the torture debate came along, it was such a mind shift because yeah. now you're getting into a whole other – this is not um, um, a solutions-based dynamic. <laughs> uh, uh, Ch- ChatGPT Ch- Ch- can't tell you where yeah. Osama bin Laden is Pre- Precisely, precisely. And it really like laid bare um, – you know, kind of the divisions between technical intelligence and signals intelligence, which is a huge part of what the intelligence community does, and human intelligence, which was the thing that was lacking. I mean, the CIA did not have enough people who spoke Arabic and Pashto. They didn't have operatives in Afghanistan and all these places. And so there was this real sense that um, of just huge desperation because the CIA in particular knew how very far behind the curve it was. And, you know, as you remember, too, I mean, we we were all convinced the next attack was coming any day. Yeah. And we were just blind. No, I mean, I was in I was a senior in high school when it happened. And there was a someone told me that, you know, a plane had hit the World Trade Center. It's like, that's that's cool. That's not real. And there was a TV on in the teacher's lounge, and I went in there and watched it. And um, I went to I went to English class. So I this, I was living in the Boston area, and as you know, plays right a Logan. Um, mm-hmm. And so my English teacher walked into class hysterical because her husband was on a morning flight out of Logan to LA, oh, and he was on the one of those three flights that was not hijacked. You know, my sophomore year social studies teacher, his wife was a flight attendant, and she'd switch shifts with her best friend so she could have root canal, and her friend died. Oh, God. Um, and so, and I got my first cell phone because I had to go on a like high school debate trip eight days later. And mom was like, "If the planes are going down, you are on the phone to your mother." Um, wow. But it's, you know, it's interesting to me that when I think about September 11th, I don't think about Osama bin Laden that mm-hmm. much, right? And I don't. I mean, I remember the, just how sensational that news was, mm-hmm. but I don't entirely know what it means, mm-hmm. right, long term. I don't, you know, I mean, and so to me in some ways Zero Dark Thirty becomes a greater movie yeah. with distance because, you know, at the time that it came out, the assassination of Bin Laden was still, you know, sort of, Fresh and ex- I mean, I feel like it's so tacky to say that it was exciting, but it was exciting. Oh, right? and they, the mean, filmmakers got incredible access from the CIA because, like, the administration was falling all over itself to tell this story to yeah. every journalist and to a filmmaker of Catherine Bigelow's renown. I mean, well, and it, you know, I mean, look, it was a story that was sort of entwined with Hollywood from the beginning, right? Like, Dwayne the Rock Johnson breaks the story <laughs> nationally, right? I mean, people forget about this that like he knew a bunch of Marines and he tweeted it. Is that how it broke? It's like him and our like mutual friend Keith Urban. Oh um, no who, way! Yeah, it's like this is what you know. This it's like Dwayne Johnson is like we got Bin Laden people. God, I forgot that. Yeah. That's wild. Um, and so it's you know it's a story that is by nature cinematic. Um, that you know is tied up. You know ends up incidentally tied up with Hollywood. But I don't. I mean, I don't know what the assassination of Bin Laden means to me today. Yeah, and you're right? put, you, to me, you're putting your finger on something too, which has always been interesting to me, which is that there really aren't that many movies about 
Yeah. I mean, there are very few movies that are directly about 9-11. Yeah. I would think like World Trade Center, the Oliver Stone film, yeah. which is kind of terrible. Yeah. Um, there's the incredible documentary by the French filmmakers. Which Flight 93. Right. Yeah. Flight 93 is actually yeah. might be, you know, it's it's so good just on its own that I wonder if maybe people thought like we're just not going to do it. Yeah, but also movie. like that's a movie I don't think I can watch. Like I haven't actually watched that movie. I oh, don't think yeah. I can. It's it's oh. really hard. Yeah. It's really really hard. Although it's incredibly tastefully done, but mm-hmm. it's really hard. But it's just, it's you're right. It's not an event. Um, it's not an event that it gets portrayed in film a lot. I mean, it's kind of adjacent in some ways to certain mm-hmm. stories. But Zero Dark Thirty, I mean, you know, to kind of go back to the America mm-hmm. Fuck Yeah thing, I mean, it's like it's not to say that that movie is triumphalist no. because, as you point out, like the Jessica Chastain character who is kind of this it ends with her weeping. It yeah. ends with her feeling empty, right? Yeah. I mean, it's she's you know, kind of wrecked by it. And I think that there was an interest. I mean, it was a movie. I, I, look, I love Catherine Bigelow. I think she's incredible. Um, you know, I think the Hurt Lockers maybe. I don't know. It's it's a less flawed movie, but it's a less great one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And you know, I think there was an interest in promoting the synergy. It was very much a product of, you know, it it was released, you know, inevitably alongside these other conversations about the war on terror and about um, you know Bin Laden's death specifically. But it really, you know. The reason I say that I think it gets greater with time is because I think that that sort of that sense of moral ruin and emotional hollowness was very ahead of its time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that it was discussed as a product of its time, but made, if not for eternity sort of for the long term in a way that I think the immediate discussion about it couldn't quite capture. Yeah, I, you're making me think, too, that, I mean, Zero Dark Thirty is in some ways, <clears throat> it, it's a superb spy movie, right, for that period. I mean, it, it's it's wonderful in that also it's capturing the CIA at a moment where it becomes a paramilitary organization, but it's also dependent on the human tradecraft of intelligence gathering. And they show that really, really well. But as you put it, like the emotional and hollowness, the way that it kind of, it, it, it destroys her character and empties her out. It's, that's kind of what happens to George Smiley in many yes. ways, right? In Tinker Taylor and in the La Carre. Uh, yeah, no, novels. and I mean, you know, I think one of the reasons, you know, I think the best spy stories get at the fact that there is something sort of fundamentally immoral yeah. about the work yep. and that, um, the people who are masters of it, at least in fiction, are themselves unusual in some way, right? I mean, you know, you have the total sort of remorseless dedication and kind of non-personness of Jessica Chastain's character in Zero Dark Thirty. You know, in um, in Carré's you know, George Smiley books, you have this person who has this unbelievable capacity to take pain as represented by you know, his wife Anne's infidelities, Mm -hmm. but also this ability to be unbelievably patient in the long game to achieve this victory over Carla. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, he's someone who has a different sort of threshold for personal dignity Mm -hmm. and his willingness to sacrifice that. And it, you know, it's what makes him, you know, queasy, but so watchable. And I think, you know, I think Gary Oldman embodied that so amazingly yeah. in you know the recent the semi-recent Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy yeah. um you know adaptation um 
which is just so unbelievably satisfying. It's such a great movie. Right? And it's like, and part of what's amazing about that is that the arch spy ends up being the person, like not the person who is most genteel, not the person who is, you know, sort of best at like blending in in his environment or whatever. He's, you know, he's the invisible man. He's the man in the gray flannel suit. He's, you know, he is, he wins by being the most self-abnegating. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And I love that it's, it, I think, you know, for, I think people who love to sort of bash on Hollywood and it's all of its moralizing, and Hollywood does make lots of moralizing mm-hmm. preachy films. Spy movies are the place where they can really embrace the immorality, like you said, of what espionage really is. I mean, it's, you know, it is stealing. It's cheating. It's mm-hmm. lying. It's deception. No. You know, now, if it's done in the name of, you know, your side, we feel better about it. But, like, you know, Michael Hayden, the former CIA director, I mean, he's talked about this before. He said, like, in documentaries, he said, we steal secrets. No. That's our job. Yeah. We're thieves. And, you know, it, it's it's such a richer terrain as a writer to play in than trying to make everybody about, you know, fighting the good fight, which those are satisfying stories. But too. at the same time, the glamorization of immorality plays a moral role in society, mm-hmm. right? I mean, um, by making the case for the continued necessity of, you know, this level of immorality, you know, what do we countenance? What yeah. do we right. – um, you know, and in a way, sort of the more nuanced and serious you are about it, the more successful you are mm-hmm. at that moral end, yeah. right? You know, I mean, I think something like um, uh, like Breach, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a movie that, you know, I think is really successful in part because it's so mundane, right? And Chris Cooper is so queasy as Robert mm-hmm. Hansen, right? I mean, yeah. that's a movie where that's really sort of radically deglamorized yep. and – you know, Ryan Felipe, who I think is not, you know, typically treated as a great actor, gives an incredible performance as someone who's just like, who's being asked to do something that is both necessary and just sickening to do over right, and over again. Right, because he's spying on his boss, basically. Well, he's, and he's not just spying on his boss, but he's trying to sort of ingratiate himself with this person who is unpleasant, who is socially awkward. Um, you know, it's, yeah, it's, and the whole framework of the movie is just grubby and gray. It mm-hmm. is, you know, sort of the essence of its color palette. Um, yeah. And so a movie like that, you know, I think gets at it both, you know, like Robert Hansen needed to be caught. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, the system that he needed to be caught in part because he exploited the system that we've set up to, <laughs> you know, to do bad things right. on our behalf. It's, you right. know, that's that movie is just about the sort of ultimate matryoshka doll of mm-hmm. intelligence. Yeah. It just yeah. there's always a layer where it's like you're doing something bad because you're doing something good. Totally. So you need to do something bad in order it's you know it And there's like shows that have done this so successfully I think of are like The Bureau, yeah. which is marvelous. Uh, and the Americans. Yeah. I mean maybe that maybe the Americans is even the better example. I mean I I, I did you watch the whole series? Yeah. So I when we got to the end of that, <clears throat> we had Joe we've had Joe Weisberg on the show before who created the show. I remember so desperately wanting something to, for the protagonist to be punished. I yeah. wanted them to suffer because, I mean, you're, you're both rooting for them, both as parents and as spies, even though, which is kind of like, you know, a mind twist, of course, because they're the bad Russian spies. What's going on? But they're 
the choices that they make are so devastating to so many people, including their family, not to mention all the people they murder along the way, <clears throat> um, that the ending of that... Poor Martha. I know. God, there needs to be a sequel about Martha. Justice for Martha. I pitched Joe Weisberg on this idea. I was like, you need to have a spin-off about Martha. He's like, there are three people who are behind this idea. Me, my show creator, and you. <laughs> Everybody else says no. Um, but I loved the ending of that, of... of you know, of Paige getting off the train and then being separated. Because I thought to myself, like, A, good for Paige, but B, like, yeah, you deserve it. You're terrible people, right? And I love that that show made you, on the same time, root for them at the same time that you're hoping for their ruin. Uh, And it's that is something that those are emotions that the espionage drama or genre can play with in ways that I just don't think others can do it so easily. No. Well, and it's one of the – I mean, that is one of the only examples – where I think the the antihero works, the antihero dynamic works the way it's intended to, yeah. right? Where you know their competence is amazing within the sort of hermetically sealed mm-hmm. yeah. world of their marriage. You can root for them, but you know you can never stop counting the costs, right? Like they're never so awesome that you're like, you know, fuck yeah, Mister White. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't have, you know. There's no version of that show where – there's no way to watch that show where it's like Tony Soprano murdering people is just awesome and I'm going to let everything else right, go. Right, 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 right. Um, do you have a favorite spy movie? Oh, boy. That's tricky. I don't know that I ha- – I don't, I don't rank things yeah. generally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my I do another podcast uh, across the movie aisle with Peter Suderman and Sonny Punch and – they always make me do a top 10 list at the end of the year. Yeah. And I always just like completely that. half-ass it and throw it together at the end. And often we'll like cheat and, you know, t- have ties and revise in show. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, look, I think, the, I mean, for sort of recent stuff, um, the Tinker Tailor adaptation and then the Americans are yeah. pretty, pretty hard to beat. I mean, if nothing else, just the ending, um, you know. That you know, that solitary tear of blood, mm-hmm. La Mer, uh-huh. the yeah. triumph of George Smiley, uh-huh. Uh-huh. just unbeatable. It's right? pretty great. That melding of like your victory is someone's tragedy. Sometimes I think rather than like try, like try to create a top ten, the question is better of like, what's a movie that if it's on, you'll just drop anything and watch it. Yeah, right. I feel like Hunt for October is that way for me. Um, if Zero Dark Thirty were on, I'd watch it too. And I could feel yeah. like I could watch it. I could pick it up like any point in the middle, beginning. Yeah, exactly. That yeah, it's all good. Yeah, um, Casino Royale, right? You know. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Um, Who do you think should be the next Bond? Oh boy. Well, and the bigger question is like, what should the next Bond be? Okay. Right? Because okay. you've had, you know, you've had an argument like this recent stretch. Um, of Bond movies is an argument for Bond's obsolescence, right? It's like the empire he serves um, is crumbling and being held to accountability. Um, He is ultimately in a situation where like he, you know, Bond himself is forced to become an attached figure, right? It's like he has a child. Um, He is, you know, he is sort of wrenched away from that sort of necessary expendability and the thing that he has to do to save that child to sacrifice himself. So what should Bond be? Like and that's the question. What, you know, what is espionage? What mm-hmm. is, you know, what is spying in the modern era? Mm-hmm. Um and you know, one thing I think has been really interesting about Hollywood's indebtedness to China is that it means that the contemporary spy movie has not 
adapted to the new great power game. Yep. Right? I mean, we just we don't have movies with Chinese villains because right. they can't be sold abroad and because they would have consequences for other movies made by the studios who want to sell movies abroad. But we have no cinematic argument about what the, you know, the clash of ideologies between the Chinese Communist Party and the US looks like. We mm-hmm. have no, you know, mass fictional model for, you know, Chinese spies versus American spies. We have none of those sort of locales. We have none of those, you know, I mean, we, you know, we don't even, to the extent that there is a vision of, you know, a playing field that includes, you know, Africa or South America or any of the places where sort of Belt and Road efforts are happening. It's like, here's a location flashed randomly on the screen at the beginning of a Bond movie or an Avengers movie or, you know, it's um, American pop culture has not adapted to the new circumstances. It is silent on this subject. And, you know, to a certain extent, I think that's because, you know, we don't have sort of national events like the Berlin Airlift that Mm -hmm. have clarified the differences in national approaches, right? I mean, if you look at the coverage of Chinese couples who aren't having kids, the reasons that they say they're doing it are literally indistinguishable from what American couples say about making the same decision. Like, we don't have those contrasts sharply delineated and part of our conversation yet, even though that's, like, that that sort of seems like where this is all heading. Mm -hmm. And... You know, Hollywood, a different version of Hollywood could be a place where we work out some of those questions. Do you So do you think it's likely that that's going to happen? And B, will that look like some filmmaker or studio just saying, you know what, we're going to make a movie that is never going to show in China, but we're going to make something that was reflecting the conflict as we see it? Because we had, I mean, we, we all mm-hmm. Americans – to a great degree, particularly people of our generation, experienced the Cold War through movies, through yep. popular culture. That's how we interpreted yep. what was mm-hmm. going on. Yeah, and I mean, Netflix has never does, has never competed in China, right? They just decided hmm. that that was not worth their while. Um, they submit to censorship requests from a lot of other countries like India, Saudi Arabia, et cetera. Um, but they're sort of the place that could do it, although given the sort of issues with their plateauing subscriber growth, we'll see where that happens. Yeah. But like, yeah, I would love to see someone make a geopolitical horror movie about a foreign power that creates an app that it uses to poison an entire country's brains, right? Like, TikTok is horror movie. is like an obvious <laughs> totally. techno thriller, totally. right? Like, <laughs> totally. You know, it's like a, you know, it's like this app convinced like all American teenagers that they have like ticks or eating right. disorders or whatever. Right. Um, you know, I would like, what does American spycraft I, you know, what does the great game look like when it's American and Chinese spies play in Nigeria? I have no idea. I would be super interested to watch that, right? Right. right. Um, you know, it's like, does does the American political system and the freedom it offers have the kind of appeal that it does that, you know, for Chinese spies um, at a time when the regime has, you know, dramatically raised standards of living and where the U.S. has been through, like, the Iraq War and the financial crisis. I mean, you know, these are questions that I've explored on film would help us work out our self-image. Yeah. And there's an extent to which, you know, it's not like Hollywood has ever been 
high-minded when there are not really profits or something to be made of it. But, you know, I I would like to see the entertainment that comes of working out those issues because it's probably a conversation we could stand to have, right? Yeah. I mean, for the love of God, like you have a – the only good thing that Donald Trump did was like the creation of the Space Force, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> because like there's going to be great power competition in space in our lifetimes. Yes. Like that's going to be a real thing, yes. right? I mean, for, you know – how do you not have someone doing comedy that's like about the balloon, the Chinese balloon? Of right? course, it's so perfect. Right, and it's like we like we could have like dueling space satellites in our lifetimes, yeah. and the like the greatest special effects machine in history isn't taking advantage of this stuff. Like, come on! And it's amazing to me that like we have like there is a show about the great power battle in space. But it's for all mankind. It's yeah. alternate history about us and the Russians. Yeah. Like, I mean, the actual battle in space would, of course, be about the U.S. and yeah. China. I mean, it's yeah. playing out right now. Yeah. Well, and it's, I mean, you you know, you can get some of this stuff. I mean, Kim Stanley Robinson's, like, Mars trilogy, one of the things that's really interesting about it is that it just assumes that different countries will be very important in this kind of great power conflict mm. in space. Um, like, you know, when he wrote those books, China was, like, totally out of the equation. You end up with, like, a bunch of, you know, Shinto Japanese settlers and, like, the Swiss parachuting in and being like, we're just going to mediate for the entire galaxy, <laughs> right? It's like you have big, you know, corporations. But, you know, these questions are interesting, right? It's like yeah. what happens if, you know, a culture that's not American ends up settling Mars? What happens, you know— what does like what does space warfare actually look like? Yeah. Uh, what does the great game look like if the competition is to like do we get carbon out of Congo's forests or keep it in the ground? Right? Like they're just I don't know the answer to any of these questions. Yeah. Pop culture could help us sort it out and yeah. have a lot of fun doing it. And I think so happening. too. And I think it's gonna take some journalists probably covering a lot of this and, and people who've worked Frankly, like ex-intelligence officers probably writing books about it to start explaining the storylines to people in Hollywood who themselves – I mean this is – I'm sure this is as opaque to most people as it is to your typical Hollywood screenwriter. Yeah, but it's not like some of this stuff hasn't been covered, right? I mean – True. You know, um, the Wall Street Journal had a big piece recently about how a lot of like the Belt and Road infrastructure that China has financed and helped build abroad is falling apart because it's terrible. And so, you know – how about something about, like a dam that's about to like you can do a set piece with like a Belt and Road dam that's about to fall apart, right? right. Like there's real cheap and easy opportunities for pro-American propaganda on the ground. <laughs> Somebody's gonna pick this idea up and hire you. And be you like, know, you I uh, consult for us. <laughs> Try a USAID contract on the on the slide. Do you want me to just like? It's like I will read the newspaper for you for money. Right. Um, sure. <laughs> It's like the player. It's like Robert Altman's The Player. Right? You just read the newspaper. All the stories are right here. Why do we have a writing department? Exactly. I love it. Exactly. Um, so our tradition on Chatter is that our last question is <gasps> I reach in here to the Chatter box, which is here live and in person. And I'm going to ask you a uh, pre-written question. Select it at random. Oh, my gosh. There we go. Okay. All right. Oh, this is actually a good one. Okay. This is a good one for you, I think. What common misperception about your profession or specialty makes your blood boil? Mm. Well, let's talk about opinion journalists mm. specifically. Okay. Um, because I think there is a sense that, you know, it's like it's just a job where you sit around and like spout off. Right. And I think, you know, and there look, there are people in the profession who do that. But 
opinion journalism is full of curious, insecure weirdos, right? <laughs> and then to a certain extent, it's one of the best jobs on the planet because you can be like, I'm curious about this thing. I want to go down a rabbit hole. You like, you don't have to be tethered to events that other people are controlling. You can just say like, I'm really interested in how you teach kids to read mm. or you know, I have gotten interested in this period of American history that don't pe people don't pay a lot of attention to. And, you know, I think the stuff that people read in opinion journalism is sort of overwhelmingly about politics. Mm -hmm. And that's a shame because there's, you know, some like someone like Jessica Gross is doing really interesting work on motherhood and middle age at, you know, at the, um, the New York Times. Opinion journalism also takes place at places that are not just the New Yorker, right? So or at the New York Times or the end of the Washington Post. So, you know, Amy Davidson Sorkin at the New Yorker, um, you know, writes these incredibly sort of elegant, crisp opinion columns um, for Talk of the Town that are just a pleasure to read and sort mm -hmm. of, you know, a perfect example of the form. And so I think the idea that opinion journalism is all about politics and the idea that it's like, you know, a bunch of people sitting around with like their shoes on the desk being right. like, all right, folks, let me let me tell you what's what. Right. Um, what in fact, it's just it's like it's a much weirder and more expansive field. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the reasons it's really fun to work in it. Well, and one that I think after people listening to this conversation will appreciate is one in which, you know, the writers like you are immersed in their subject. You're doing the work you're you're doing. The, your reporting is yeah. in, at least on these subjects is going out. It's seeing these films 10 times. It's thinking about them. It's talking to people about them. Or it's going to the National PTA Legislative Conference and being like, oh, you know, there are a bunch of people who are like feeding hungry kids in Utah and handing out Narcan in Montgomery County. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, you know, the like it's reporting can be really grim and depressing, yeah. but it can also just be a kind of, you know, it can be delightful and surprising. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your work is always those things. Uh, and this has been a delight as well. Melissa Rosenberg, my friend. Oh. This was fun. Let's do this again. Anytime, yeah. Shane. Anytime. Movies, aliens, you name it. All right. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.